0: Welcome, guys and gals, to The Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Uh, Joining me today for a very interesting conversation about Me Too is Mr. Mark Green. And Mark writes and speaks on culture, society, family, and fatherhood. Uh, for organizations like the Good Man Project, uh, and for his own project, Re- th- Remaking Manhood. Uh, his work is a timely and balanced look at the life-affirming challenges emerging from the modern masculinity movement. He writes and speaks on men issues for not only the Good Man Project, but the Shriver Report, the New York Times, uh, Salon, and BBC and Huffington Post. So he's it's a little bit of everywhere, but... One of the reasons why I wanted to have Mark on the show was he wrote a book uh, called The Little Me Too Book for Men, and it's a, very, uh, it's a very short read. It's only about 75 pages, so it's not not a long one. We'll have a link to that in the show notes for you, um, but also uh, it, he dives into just sort of breaking down, not necessarily what the Me Too movement is, but sort of portraying a picture of sort of why men have got where they are. Uh, the, the man culture, he talks a lot about the man box and how men need to relate, not need to, but how men can better understand why the Me Too movement has happened. So in this episode, Mark and I have a bit of a dialogue around... The man box, uh, you know what male, where where male culture is actually at right now. Some of the challenges that men are facing, um, why some men sort of buck against this idea of the Me Too movement, to the feminist movement. We talk about what the Me Too movement actually is and what it was in the first place some of the challenges and and some of the conversations that revolve around it. So it is a, a great conversation uh, about a few of these pieces that relate to the Me Too movement. And I would love to hear your thoughts on this because this is a big topic. So feel free to share this one on any social media platform. Tag me in it. Um, but feel free to reach out. DM me on Instagram at Mantalks. Let me know what you thought about this episode. Uh, and for all of the guys that are here, Uh, that want to go deeper into conversations like this, definitely check out the Man Talks Facebook community. Uh, It's just Man Talks community. You can go on over to Facebook and search for us there. Uh, And don't forget to apply to join for one of our men's weekends, the one that is coming up in May is almost full. I think we've got one spot left, but we will have a few more weekends coming out this year that will be on the west and east coast, so I hope to see you there. Uh, without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Mark Green.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, likewise. I am very interested in our topic today as I'm sure many of the listeners are, and it's a it's been a discourse that's been going on, you know, obviously for a while in in main culture, but specifically in the Man Talks community online uh, and and through some of our groups. It's uh, it's definitely come up quite a bit, and there are a ton of questions uh, about Me Too and how it relates to men and everything that we need to know. But before we dive into that, I have to ask you the question that I ask all my guests, regardless of what they talk about, which is, tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. Hmm.
1: Well, I um, you know, I, I talk a lot about a sort of a, a change that came into my life when my son was born. And the story I would tell is that, you know, when when he was first born, I was frantic running up and down the stairs, you know, getting this, doing, get, please give me tasks to do. I don't know what to do with an actual human being. So, you know, send me, send me for this to the store, let me do laundry, or whatever. But I flash forward then to an evening about a year later. And I lived in a house in upstate New York, which had a, a an open sort of old 1930s open floor plan down below in the lower part of the house. And the sun was was almost down and the house was quiet. And I was holding my son and walking in circles from the dining room to the kitchen, to the living room, to the dining room, just in a loop through the house. And The sound of the floorboards creaking lightly as he was tucked in my arms against me, breathing that kind of gentle, totally peaceful, relaxed, trusting breath that a child has uh, when they're in the arms of their mother or father. And something about what I went through, the journey I went through from the day he was born until that evening. Had changed me into a person who understood my value as a human being and my capacity, my really rich capacity to connect and care for and feel the power of of a human connection. And this is something that uh, through the course of most of my life, I had no faith in myself to be able to do. So for me, that evening of walking in that slow circle as the light got dimmer and dimmer in the house and my son. Uh, slept against me, and I just thought in that moment wow i i have finally arrived
0: I love it, I love it, what a great story and it's you know it's so interesting the more that I interview people on this show i don't I don't have kids, but the more that I interview people on this show, the more that I hear about how their children have you know just radically changed their lives. Um, whether it's you know learning from them, or I had another gentleman on the show, his name was Andrew Horn, and he talked about how his relationship with his daughter actually was one of the biggest teaching moments and transformational moments um, that that he possibly could have experienced in his life. And so it's interesting to see how these little entities remind us of uh, a part of us that that we often, as we get older, uh, and life becomes more chaotic, and we have more bills to pay. That we seem to disconnect from this this sort of innocence within us, and it can bring us back to that. So, I'm I'm curious if you can expand a little bit more on some of the lessons that you feel like you've learned as a father.
1: Well, I think one of the things that you know I, I write and speak a lot about man box culture and about what our culture teaches us about being real men. But one of the things that directly, that that ends up being a a direct counter agent to man box culture is the growing relationships that fathers are having with their children, whether they are full-time primary caregivers to their kids or fully engaged dads who are also working. Somehow, some way, we've managed to create a culture of parenting that allows fathers to fully engage with their children and form the kind of ongoing conversations and connection and play and humility that allows our children and ourselves to sort of inform each other's lives in a completely new, completely uh, much more dynamic and rich way. My partner and and my writing partner and wife, Salihabhava, says this about kids. She says, as we shape them, they shape us.
0: I love it. I love it. That is such a a wise a wise quote from a very wise individual, and uh, I think this is a this is a good sort of segue. You know, you brought up the man box and some of the sort of masculine masculine culture that you write about and, and talk about, and um, this is something that I've been immersed in now for for years and years and years, and it's interesting to see how the conversations that men are having has sort of. Shifted and changed and evolved over the last decade, and so I'm I'm curious if you can give some insight first and foremost before we sort of dive into the into the depths of the Me Too movement and and you know how that pertains to men. I'm curious if you can j- just give some context to maybe how you've seen the conversations and the sort of masculine culture shift and evolve over the last few decades,
1: right. Well my uh, my history in this space goes back about 10 years. I've been a uh, an editor at the Goodman Project for for about 10 years and I began writing as a as part of the sort of the dad stay-at-home dad blogging movement. And then as my son was born and as I continued in that space, I began to realize there were all these um biases against dads as fathers uh, as as full-time parenting fathers. And, and back then it was, I mean, any commercial you saw on TV had, you know, was making fun of dads with, you know, dropping their kids on their heads and they're completely inept. And this whole idea that, that, uh, there was something fundamentally, um, unmanlike about being a full-time parent. So a lot of dad bloggers, a lot of men in that space started forming, uh, you know, political actions where they reached out to advertisers who were taking that position and said, hey, wait a minute. And at the same time, we were fighting our own battles at the local playground when you're the only dad there in the middle of the day with your kid. And there's a a bunch of moms and they're like, what, you lost your job? You know, what happened? Or Are you babysitting today? What's going on with you? Mm. So the messages we got as fathers sort of became my, uh, my segue into the larger questions of, of how do we define men? in our our dominant culture of masculinity and how and and how do we police men and how do we approve or disapprove of the choices and the actions that we take every day because i consider us to be a a a, a heavily policed population and uh, the first thought that comes to mind for a lot of men may be oh yeah political correctness and women are always telling us what we got to do But from my perspective, uh, it's become quite clear to me that we are actually far more heavily policed by the other men around us. And Mm. that's where this idea of man box culture comes in. So the conversation about manhood and masculinity has grown, at least what I've seen, uh, from something which is a sort of a reactive, binary-driven, binary-inducing, argument between the most polarized aspects of the gender conversation, and when the Goodman Project started up originally, it was World War Three on those comment sections, it was unbelievable, has become a more nuanced conversation now as all parties have begun to understand that if we're going to have growth uh, on par with w- the kinds of conversations women began having in the feminist movement you know, 30, 40 years ago we have to give men space to self-reflect and to start to consider uh, their choices in terms of how they define masculine identity. And that shift has made space for a lot of, I think, really powerful conversations to start to happen for men.
0: Mm, yeah. Yeah. I would, I would agree with that. And I, you know, it's interesting you talk about policing one another and it is interesting that there does seem to be a huge culture of of policing within within the gender of men and and i would say within the gender of women as well they they seem to police themselves just on different things
1: mm-hmm.
0: but with men specifically and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute but um why one of the things that i've noticed is that largely when it comes to talking about topics like me too there seems to be this this very polarizing nature that it's either this or that. It's you know a, a lot of men seem to have to fall on one side of the fence or the other that they that they agree completely with it or that they disagree completely with it. They sort of love it or, or hate it, uh, and I see a lot of guys falling into this trap of of hyper polarization. Mm-hmm. Why why is it that you or why is it in your opinion do you feel like a lot of men when it comes to Me Too specifically are so charged about this about this specific topic,
1: right? Well, if I could um, just go into a little bit here uh, about manbox culture itself mm-hmm. and how it forms uh, masculine identity, uh, I, I will circle around to exactly why that reactivity is there. And when we talk about manbox culture, we're talking about an idea that Paul Kivel uh, first conceptualized in. Uh, as part of the Oakland Men's Project in the 1980s, and he went into uh, schools, high schools, and talked to boys and girls. And he asked boys, you know, what, how do you define a real man? And what he found was a very uniform set of responses across different parts of the Bay Area, across different race and class and uh, economic uh, standing and whatnot. But the rules of the man box were pretty straightforward. Boys said, "Well, you you don't show your emotions." Um, you're always a leader. You're tough. You don't show pain. Um, you talk about sports. You're into sports. You always get the girls. And uh, and y- y- you make money. You make a lot of money. That's what a real man does. That's what a real man is. This man box culture, then they would say, the next question that would ask, and by the way, I did this same man box workshop uh, in a New York school last year, and the same answers came up. But the, the next question to, the, to these guys is, well, okay, so if you're not doing this very well, let's say you show some emotions, what happens then? And uniformly, they say, oh, yeah, well, we call you a sissy or a girl or a faggot. So the way in which we uh, raise boys in man box culture is to suppress what, can, what could be described as emotional expression, but what I think it is cl- closer to is authentic expression of self We suppress that. And the way that we do it is we denigrate it as feminine. So we take this universally human capacity for uh, authentic, deeper, more meaningful communication, and we suppress it in boys by by, by falsely gendering it as feminine and then denigrating it. So this process by which we do this with boys begins as early as age three and four, um Judy Chu wrote a book called When Boys Become Boys and she was embedded in a pre-K class for uh for 2 years she followed these kids and watched how these boys slowly but surely began to deny their own emotional acuity to uh pretend they didn't want to talk to the girls to do the, the behaviors that the leaders of their cohort demanded of them and, and all of these aligned with manbox culture and then this goes on throughout their lives and and I don't know what your experience of being a boy was but in, in the world I grew up in, these reinforcements, this denigration of the feminine as a reinforcement of what not to be, and, and also the denigration of LGBT people, didn't happen once a week. It happened hourly. It was a constant back and forth of microaggressions. What are you, a sissy? What are you, a fag? What are you, a girl? Oh, you know, And we all had to take on this language in order to be accepted into our cohort, right? So when you're raised in this man box culture of policing and denigration- you get wired to, to, to just just denigrate women as part of the process of connecting and, and performing your male identity. So flash forward, suddenly women begin to say, we need equality, we need equal access, we need uh, equal rights. And by the way, there's a lot of abuse against women going on. And men are either self-reflecting and saying, yeah, you know, that's kind of happening. Or they fall back on this constant uh, programming of the denigration of women and they just carry on with that thread. And that thread gets very angry and very reactive when the privilege that men have is challenged from a feminine perspective or from what they they consider to be a, a woman's role or a woman's proper place.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's interesting because as you're describing this You know the the man box, which I I think a lot of guys that are entering this space, they've you know maybe they've seen Tony Porter's uh, TED Talk Mm -hmm. or they've sort of heard these this terminology before because it is has become quite popular, uh, especially in the sort of like personal development space when it comes to men or just a conversation around men. But I'm curious, you know, you're you're talking about some of these things showing up in boyhood, and I grew up in Central Alberta, which is like the Texas of Canada, Mm -hmm. and so it's it's very much. You know, there's a lot of oil. There's a lot of big trucks. A lot of country, and and it's very much that hyper macho culture. And what you're talking about is is you know very much prevalent within within that culture. Um, but I'm I'm curious just to get your perspective of of maybe why why like why and how some of these things have evolved to become so prominent as a sort of cornerstone in masculine culture, and why we as men have taught those things to our boys like it from your perspective because i have my own views on this but i'm always curious as to you know from your perspective where this has come from and, and why we as men have needed to reinforce these sort of beliefs uh within the younger boys within within the younger generation
1: right i sort of put this down to the beginning of the industrial revolution when for the first time in the history of the world men were pulled out of their homes and pulled onto the factory floor or later into these tall high-rises and literally were were no longer embedded in the daily life of their families in the same way that they had been for generations right so one of the things that is important to understand is that men especially in frontier life men in, in the uh, in the evolution of Europe men all over the world have had to on some level be tough we we understand that but so did women and so did children. But men were embedded in the daily family life in ways that they ceased to be during the Industrial Revolution. And for me, it was that, that separating away where men became providers instead of uh, caregivers. It used to be, you know, men and and children and women all did shared work. They all did the shared process of supporting the family. They were all equally uh, engaged all day long in the work of survival. But now we have a culture where men are, are, are truncated, di- disconnected from the daily emotional uh, processes of the, the little micro conversations and the daily work of being uh, uh, in a family. And at the same time, uh, we begin to privilege uh, income. We begin to privilege all of these other aspects of manhood as being things that we do, right men men hide their emotions men make money men get women men don't men are leaders men don't show fear these are all actions versus being right so somehow it became productive to create these sort of tests that men had to pass daily uh, every day you know you're back on the on the uh, the hamster wheel yeah yeah we know what you did yesterday what have you done lately to prove you're a man and that slots in very well into the sort of the hierarchical structures of companies and corporations which are hierarchical pecking orders and of status and power right so you have to understand that manbox culture is based on a hierarchical pecking order and as such men began to get into this place where they were competing to get up this pyramid of power and that pyramid of power was really about expressing dominance and authority and and knowing more than anyone else and being more aggressive and all of these things which led to the sort of the culture that we have now, uh, which has cut men off from the more authentic expression of self and instead taught them over and over again to perform manhood as a series of actions. So there's no self-reflection there. There's no authentic connection. We don't talk about our doubts, our fears, our concerns. We don't express anything that, you know, we do a lot of covering. Men do this thing called covering. And it's basically in the corporate world, they say, oh, yeah, if you go into your job and you roll your sleeves down to cover up your tattoos and you or you cut your hair a certain way to fit in better because you don't want to you don't want the guys at the top to think you're not on the team. Well, we do this daily in our in our uh, lives as men. And the end result is we perform a surface level version of being a person. So all of our relationships are fringe, what we call friendships of proximity. We, you know, our friend, our circle of friends are, oh yeah, I know the guys at the gym. But if we change gyms, we just change friends because it's all the same. It's all the same sort of surface level performance, right? Uh, which ultimately leads to a, a, what we have as an epidemic of isolation in America. Mm. But, but you, you're talking about why men teach this to their sons, because once you get this generational cycle of no longer expressing emotionally or authentically. And the, the, the huge challenge with man box culture for boys is that you need years of trial and effort, exploration and engagement to grow your ability to form relationships, right? That's what we do. When a baby first communicates, it's a loud, awkward sound or a really big laugh. And over years, human beings, if they have the opportunity to do the work, begin to nuance connection, connection across difference, how to speak to people who have a different point of view, all these things. Boys are cut off from that work, from this simple, basic beginning of don't show your emotions. Don't connect in authentic ways. So ultimately, men have nothing to teach, but the rules of being a man. And believe me, as a father, if you're, if you're a dad on the playground and your kid falls down and starts crying, you take a deep breath. Because you don't want him to cry for too long and you want him to get up and handle this himself and you want him to be tough because you know what the rest of the world is like out there and you don't want him to be the kid who gets targeted. Mm. You don't want him to be the kid that's different. So we do it out of fear. We do it out of a lack of additional options. This is all I know about being a man. And ultimately, we condemn them to this same cycle of social isolation and disconnection. And by the way, Men aren't the only ones who teach this to their sons. Women teach it. Women and women have internalized man box culture, and they have and or they may have the same set of fears. I don't want my son to. I know what the world's like out there, and I don't want my son to be the one who gets picked, to be to be bullied.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You you brought up some really great points. I know a few of the men that. That our clients of mine, you know, that work in the financial space or in the real estate space, or just in these, just in these sort mm-hmm. of, you could call them old boy clubs, right? Like mm-hmm. <clears throat> the financial space is definitely mm-hmm. one of those, one of those uh hierarchical pecking orders where it's it is a it is about power for a lot of for a lot of these guys, and one of the challenges that oftentimes gets brought into our sessions is that. There is a there is a disconnect between how they want to engage with their family, how they want to show up for their for their partner, for their wife, for their son, for their daughter and how they want to emotionally connect with them. Mm-hmm. But there is a very real fear. And one of my clients actually said this last week. He said, I, I am terrified that if I am emotional at home, it will become the crack in my armor at work that destroys mm-hmm. my career. And, and so there is this very real fear that now now we start to see because these conversations are becoming more prominent. More men are starting to question, you know, the validity of, of the sort of daily grind, especially, you know, I, I live here in New York City. And so that, that grind is very real for a lot of people. And there's a huge value that's put on that grind for people. You know, you hear people wearing the i call it the busy badge right so they they mm-hmm. constantly are talking about how busy they are and that becomes their form of discourse with every human being that they come into contact with
1: <laughs> proof of val- proof of validation
0: there there you go right proof of validation that's right like my worth is in how much i can do and then tell people how much i'm doing but but that fear is definitely there that if if they connect to that 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 emotionality that that emotional connection that they desperately are wanting to have with their family that somehow it's going to make them less effective and efficient when it comes to their work and i think this is some of this actually ties into the 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 me too and the, and the feminist movement that i see a lot of men looking at the feminist movement and some of the me too movement and some of the commentary around it is is that they see it as a direct attack on the toughness of men and masculinity. And so I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on how do you see our capacities as men to be able to engage in this discourse around Me Too and this conversation around feminism and still retain a sense of toughness as men? Because that, that is still a, a high value within within men. And how do you see that transforming? How do you see that toughness transforming? I know that's yeah. a big question.
1: Well the you know I, the word toughness implies an ability to take damage mm. whereas strength is the ability to do challenging tasks and 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 keep pressing on to get them completed, right so mm-hmm. when we talk about toughness in men, um we're talking about the disposability of men, the ability of men to survive trauma and challenges and difficulty to the point where they are literally sacrificing themselves for those that they love, or for the purpose, or for the battle, or for the company, or or whatnot. But for me, when we talk about this gendering of human capacities, right? So we, we don't have, I mean, right now, there's a lot of people who are making an effort to uh, give more uh, wider ranging affirmations to girls to say, Hey, you know, I saw what you did out there on the playground. That was you were tough, you were strong, you were a good leader. Way to go. You know, instead of just you're pretty. But we don't have an equal and opposite set of affirmations for boys, and we need them. If you say to boys, "Yeah, you're tough. That was great. You guys really really stayed in there and battled it out. Good job." We don't what we don't say to boys is, "Hey, I I saw that you helped your friend over there and that was great." Or we don't say to our sons, you know what? You're really good at spotting emotions in other people. What do you think he was feeling? That was amazing that you saw that. Or, or do you think it's different at their house uh, when, when they have those kind of feelings? We don't, we don't create affirmations to help boys grow what I think are an additional group of crucial human strengths, right? So if we're able to be leaders, able to be aggressive, able to fight, able to take damage, able to do all this stuff, which is part of being a human being, keep going. If we can add this other half of being human that we've wrongly gendered as feminine, which includes the ability to empathize, to understand the emotional space of other human beings, to be able to uh, bridge across difference, to be able to listen, to hold uncertainty, to see what's emerging over time, those sets of capacities combined with toughness and strength in both boys and girls create a a whole human being. And I think for men and the Me Too movement right now, one of the capacities we are never taught is how to handle experiencing difficult emotions in those we love. Men often, men often step into a situation where someone's emotional and upset And we immediately go into fix it mode. We're like, okay, what was the problem? What happened? Okay, we're going to do this and this and this. We're going to fix it. Okay, now I've given you the answer. Don't show me those emotions anymore because they're making me uncomfortable, right? But when we talk about something like the Me Too movement, every woman I have ever spoken to who decided in that moment to share something with me. And not all women are obligated to do this with us. And not all women are even going to be interested in having us approach them about that conversation. But those who have shared something with me have told me stories of trauma and difficulty and being challenged or being challenged now in the workplace still by men who move in too close, by men who say inappropriate stuff and in that moment we don't have we, we don't have an ability that we could develop over time which is to hold that emotional space for that person to create a container for them and not to jump in and fix it and not to explain it and not to tell them well i'm you know everybody deals with this or you know you're lucky it wasn't worse or all the crazy things that men say when they try to fix it and get out of the conversation Instead, we can have the strength to be there with them. And sometimes that's all they need. It's just someone to share this with and talk, talk about it, and get it out in the open. And so when we talk about male strength and when we talk about uh why men are freaked out by me too, it's because we've never grown the relational capacities we need to to both be a healer and a witness to what other people go through.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say it's you know, it's interesting because we we learn who we are through relationships. Like pretty much everything is relational when it when it really boils down to it. And mm-hmm. and it is interesting that we <laughs> that we you know men culturally for a, for a period of time have disavowed this this sort of art form and the, or the science or whatever you want to label it as of of understanding the intricacies of of relationships and how we relate to other people and having that. Sort of empathetic connection, which can actually actually create us to be even more resilient than before, and even more of a, a well-rounded leader. And I think you know this is. I'm I'm curious if you sort of see a return to some of the thoughts, some of the um, perspectives, beliefs, values of like the Stoics and and the Greeks of old, because there seems to be this resurgence that that I've seen on on my side of men who are reflecting on their own way of being in the world and trying to understand ways in which they can integrate this emotional connection and emotional intelligence without being sort of branded uh, in in a negative way.
1: Right. Well, you know what's fascinating? There's uh, a lot of data out about social isolation right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, in 2010, the AARP did a study, and they what they discovered was one in three American adults, 45 and older, considered themselves chronically lonely. They qualify as chronically lonely human beings, which means they have no one to have a significant conversation with about what's going on in their lives. Um, Cigna did a study last year, and what they came they they you know AARP studied their age group right, 45 and older, but Cigna did everybody, and what they came up with was that one out of every two Americans. Sees themselves as sometimes or always alone, not lonely, alone. And the health impact of this, um, and, and I put a lot of this down to manbox culture, by the way, because manbox culture systematically strips away boys' uh, uh, capacities, natural relational capacities, and there's that word that you used, relational capacities to form connection. And so we systematically inoculate our sons across the board against human connection. So you end up with this epidemic of isolation, which has the health impact of smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. So it increases the likelihood of, of heart disease, of neurodegenerative diseases, of cancer, of um, of obesity, of of almost every major illness that, that we face. Uh, so- This thing where we don't want to be criticized for becoming emotional, that emotionality is going to form more authentic connection, which in turn is going to create community for men. And men who go through life just married have no better health outcomes than men who go through life alone. It's men who are married or in a couple relationship with another man or whatnot, but also have a circle of male friendships That they can fall back on that will resource them during times of crisis, loss of a job, illness, loss of a loved one, divorce. Those guys are the ones who have dramatically better numbers in terms of heart disease and other illnesses. So you can be cool and not show your emotions, but you're probably gonna die earlier. Mm -hmm. And this is a significant fact that when you bring this idea to men that they are alone, that they feel deep loneliness. If they will cop to that, if they will say, yeah, you know, my best friend, you say, who's your best friend? And they say, oh, Bob. And say, When's the last time you talked to Bob? Eh, three years ago. If men will cop to their social isolation and their sense of loneliness, then they can take that next step and, and say, I'm tired of the disconnection. I want to form some more. I want to form connection in my life. And that is done through relational capacities, including emotional expression.
0: Mhm. Yeah, and it, you know, it's interesting because I <laughs> doing this men's work and, you know, leading men's weekends and bringing men together, it's so interesting to see how quickly that can transform a man's life who has maybe mm. felt stagnant or contracting or, you know, stuck or lost for so long. And for the most part, it's it's not because you know, he's, he's broken or that, you know, he's caused such a ruckus in his life. It's, it's mostly because he hasn't had good men in his life in some mm-hmm. capacity to have a good relationship with them. And he's lost the capacity. You know, like we, we grew up as boys as having these, oftentimes, hopefully we've had these really great relationships with, with other boys in our life that we've grown up with. And, and at some point we, we lose that connection and we lose that accountability and the the bringing that back into the fold can be so transformative and i i think that's part of the reason why you know there is a, a big movement with men's groups and uh, you know platforms like this and and the good man project that have become so prominent is that men are are some men at least of started are starting to realize that um, i'm curious you know in in your book the the little the little me too book for men, which, which is really a a lot of uh, what we're talking about here. Um, you, you talk about angry voices and I'm curious to get your perspective on, uh, how you see anger fitting into this, fitting into this whole equation.
1: Right. Well, before I go there, I just want to, I just want to note something about this question of, of friendship and men's work. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I will tell you that any, any man who, it, it, when we walk into a bar and meet up with a friend, and he's got some other guys with him, the first thing we start doing as men is we start threat tracking. Right? We want to figure out what who's who's the alpha in the group, what the pecking order is, what the what the acceptable subject matter is, and the microaggressions start up almost immediately. Right? So our experience of male community is who's gonna who's gonna pull the dominant card, who's gonna start uh, criticizing what I'm wearing, what I, what team I like, whatever, because it's essentially a policing context, right? The policing, the microaggressions are about policing, 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 and enforcing the pecking order. I'm an MKP brother. I went through the weekend with the Mankind Project. And when I walked into a room with 30 other men, and I didn't have to threat track anymore, that I knew every man there had come with a commitment to find connection and that, that, that we, are, we are accepted as we come, as we arrive, we are not judged, and we are brought into a community of men who understand the value of connection, it's like the air comes back into the room for the first time in decades, right? I don't have to worry which one of these guys is going to come after me on some bullshit reason in order to prove that he's following the rules of the man box. So for me, that's the power of that. you talked about boys' friendships fading away, those wonderful rich friendships we had as kids. Naomi Wei uh, is an author. She wrote a book called Deep Secrets, and she did a study with adolescent boys um, entering adolescence and and later. And boys who are entering adolescence uh, talk about their best friends like a harlequin romance. They use the word love unashamedly. And the other thing they say about that friendship is without it, I will go, I would go crazy without this, without my best friend. Then she comes back and interviews the same boys, and she's been interviewing populations of boys for for years and years. The same boy says, Oh yeah, my best friend Mike, he lives around the corner, but I don't see him so much anymore. You know, that another kid said that 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 friendship's kind of on a crossfade. And when she digs deeper, what she finds out is that these boys are busy proving what they are not. And what they are proving they are not is little boys girls or gays so for them needing and wanting that rich connection that friendship which a few years before they said they would go crazy without is a sign that they are somehow not a real man and in the moment that they disengage at that point late adolescence the suicide numbers for boys jumps to four times that of girls this is a systematic stripping away of connection that we do culturally to boys and men and it's ca- it's the impact is catastrophic. So men's work is one way to to simply go back to the fountain of connection that that we knew as young men as boys and rediscover that. Mm-hmm. And and having just eaten up you know a whole bunch of time explaining all that, I've forgotten what your question to me was, Connor. So bring it back again. I just had to I just had to bring that in because it's so crucial to you know if you're listening to this as a man and you're saying this resonates for me. Go go do the men's work. Everybody is waiting for you to show up, and it doesn't matter which group. You know, go find one and do this work. Go to the go to someone you know and tell them I'm tired of of not seeing more of you, of having you in my life more. Do whatever you need to do, but find the connection.
0: Yeah, I agree, and it's. I mean, it's such an important piece. It's such an important piece of of life in general. And um, yeah, I love what I love what you said. So the 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 question. Uh, initially, it was about anger and uh, how yes, yes. and how anger really plays into the conformity of the man box, but but also just just where men are at in general right now.
1: Right. Well, you know, we're told not, don't show your emotions, with the exception of anger. Anger is considered a valid expression of male power. So, in man box culture, we're encouraged to show anger as a way to express our dominance and our role. So often, when you're when you're dealing with men. Uh, who are performing masculinity in that way, if you have a disagreement with them, they will disagree back. You disagree again, they 'll disagree back. You disagree one more time, and they 're going to bring that anger. But at a deeper level, when you talk about manbox culture for each of us as men, and we 're all uh, believe me i 'm still performing parts of it i'm still I still feel the pressure to generate money, to do certain things which are markers of success for men. But since manbox culture is all about doing, As we age, slowly but surely, our knees give out. We can't be that physically strong anymore. Our one-liners aren't working with the women. We may get laid off from our job. We may go through a divorce. So all of these markers of male success, sooner or later, we're going to age out of being able to perform them. And if we don't have rich relationships in our lives to give us meaning, we're going to suddenly start to feel like something's wrong. Something's fundamentally wrong. Like we've been robbed. Like we've been cheated. And since man box culture and the larger culture of masculinity does not encourage self reflection, because it essentially doesn't care who we are as individuals, we're not going to have the ability to self reflect and look inside and say maybe I'm the reason that I've ended up feeling this way. Instead, we're going to start blaming. We're going to start blaming women, feminists, immigrants, you name it. And this is where a lot of the rageful culture. And, and this is where the political binaries and this is where all the di- divide and conquer wedges are coming from. I talk about in the first paragraph of my book, I say, look, the purpose of this book is to get men to understand a single idea. That is that we are raised in a culture of masculinity, a culture of manhood, which is so powerful in its indoctrination of boys and men that we come to believe that what we think a man is, is our personal truth, that it is, that it was not learned, that it is. And if we can drive a little daylight in between what we believe we are as men and this culture of manhood, which trained us into believing that, if we can drive a little daylight in there between the two, because men have forgotten that they were taught all this then it's in that space of daylight that we can begin asking questions. Well, why do I believe this and why do I feel this reactive about about me too or anything else? What did I learn? And and in that moment you can begin to unlearn if that's the choice you want to make.
0: Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great perspective and I mean it's interesting that the more conversation that I see with men Especially around anger, the more that I see what a vital role that emotion plays, you know, maybe they've seen a a, a masculine role model growing up who had such a volatile version Mm. of anger that they're terrified of it mm-hmm. in their life and so they have an unhealthy relationship to the avoidance of anger or they adopt right. that they they adopt that exact same way of being and so they become that you know angry emotionally volatile person but either way you know it's it's interesting because one of the things that that my wife says she's a marriage and family therapist she says anger is just information and it's information that's trying to tell us something and i yeah. think you know a lot of what you have talked about today is is the return of the return of men being able to understand the information of their emotions and and to to let go of the sort of need to intellectually uh, sort of push away the emotions, but to be able to experience them, let them speak and and let them have a sort of voice at the table. I, I'm I'm also curious, you know how does in in your book you talk about the role of the bully. And I think in our culture, it's interesting because it is, I mean, it's a time right now where we have, we have that archetype very much sort of in power again. And I'm curious as to how you see that, that role, um, holding, holding some of this, some of this conversation in place or what the role of the bully actually is.
1: Well, I think that the, the bullying is the, um, is the pinnacle of the performance of uh, of a hierarchical pecking order culture, right? The bully is the guy who who polices and and makes absolutely clear that no deviation from the norm will be tolerated. Hmm. And the other thing that's interesting about man box culture that you have to understand is that when you have a culture of of bullying and conformity, you you have to have a target. You have to have a certain percentage of the population that is never going to be allowed into the man box. Ten percent of boys are simply are simply named and and identified as targets for brutality. Because when you're when you're operating inside the man box, you're desperate to to perform it correctly. You're you're seeking approval from those who are above you in the hierarchy. And you're constantly aware that you're being watched and police. So this is anxiety invoking, right? And you're like, oh, 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 I just feel this every day. I feel this sense that that I'm constantly seeking to get to a place that I can never quite get to. I got the football. I'm trying to get to the goal line. and It just keeps receding ahead of me every single time. And I keep running into these other men and they're all looking the other way, going for something I can't even see. It's this game that's designed to keep us struggling and keep us not trusting other men. But additionally, the, the, this population of boys that we, we all know, we can all picture them in our minds, you know, in, in middle school, the kids in the chess club, whoever it was that there were the nerds that, that were just brutalized constantly. We brutalize that external group to warn those inside what will happen if you don't conform. And when you're inside that group and facing that constant anxiety, well, it, if it gets to be too much... and Sex and alcohol and whatever else isn't isn't doing the trick for you. You get a free get out of jail card. Just go brutalize one of those people outside because that's part of your job. Your job is to make a uh, make an example of them. So you release all this anger and frustration at a targeted group, whether that's gays, women, you know the the, the kids in the chess club, whoever it is. And so anger plays a role as a release valve for men who are constantly police. And feeling the anxiety of all of this disconnection, I, you know, social isolation for men. I, I describe it as the equivalent of a dog being chained up in the back of the yard. a yard. This is a social animal, right? You isolate a dog like that, and within a year, that thing's going to be howling at the moon. It's going to be insane. It's going to go crazy because they that's simply antithetical to how we are hardwired. Human beings have survived to this point in the history of the world, because we are social animals and we form networks of connection and we co-support each other in order to survive. Now we're doing the opposite. Now we're socially isolating ourselves. And the end result is we have, we have the best possible example of man box culture residing in the white house. This is abuse everyone around you, dominate everyone around you. And by the way, he's probably the most unhappy person I can imagine.
0: Yeah I mean it's it's interesting how the it seems like the more socially isolated the, specifically men I, I can only speak for for men but it seems to be like the more socially isolated men get the the more they create these incredibly unhealthy connections in a virtual sense you know especially with the with the age and the rise of technology like there's uh you know in the last I think for like five to 10 years, we've seen groups called incels, you know, sort mm-hmm. of form. And these are the involunt the involuntary celibate uh, men that, that sort of identify and they self identify as, as feeling rejected from society, feeling rejected by women specifically. And they've, they've, uh, they have, they basically say that they have involuntarily being forced into celibacy. And, and these men are, are often incredibly, incredibly isolated, as you're talking about, you know, the, the example of the dog being chained to the fence in the backyard for a year. And and then these men come together online and sort of have this discourse and these conversations from a very mm-hmm. hateful place. And it ends up, you know, being this really detrimental thing of, as we've seen play out in, in different cities around the world. But so okay let's let's shift a little bit and I just want to talk specifically cuz I think I think part of the confusion that some men have around let's just say the me too movement is that for for some of them it it is unclear as to what the purpose is, because that can kind of get diluted depending on what news station they watch and what media they mm-hmm. intake and you know what what conversations they're a part of. So from your perspective, what would you say is the, the main purpose of the Me Too movement?
1: Well, the Me Too movement initially, as founded by Tarana Burke, was, uh, was a way to sort of acknowledge the number of women of color that were coming to her uh, and talking about being abused. It was later that uh, Alyssa Milano uh, tweeted out, you know, if you have been a victim of sexual abuse, I forget the exact language of the tweet, uh, you know, just retweet this or tag it with me too. And the intention in that moment was simple, show the scale of the problem. That's all it was. And subsequently, you had this massive outpouring with millions of hits across all social media platforms of women telling their stories of being sexually assaulted, being sexually abused, feeling pressured at work, all the stuff that women are dealing with. Mm. The end result was that culturally, we, you know, Promundo just did a, a, a study, and something like 50% of American men now say they are more likely to intercede or step in when they see women being harassed or abused in the workplace and elsewhere. But the idea that we are suddenly going to go out and start, uh, you know, creating uh, pitchforks and, and torches and going after every man in the world is a narrative that was created to attack the Me Too movement. And there were some high profile things that happened initially. But right now, what we're really, if, if we as men cannot understand. After growing up in a brutal man box culture, what it feels like to have somebody come at you with power over, over you, then we're not thinking about this in the right way. We have to understand that we know men can be brutal. We have grown up in man box culture, and the alphas in that culture are merciless. There is no reason in the world not to believe that they treat women with the same degree of abusive uh privilege. So yes, Me Too is scary. And we don't know whether we can ask somebody out on a date and all that stuff. Look, that stuff's all solvable. It's all relational. It's all about simply bringing some empathy to the conversation and learning to listen. But this larger question of what men are going through, and you know, it's interesting, my wife's a couple and family therapist too here in New York. And the stories that I hear about what what women are dealing with are, are deeply challenging. So, if we want to if we want to understand Me Too and and how to frame it in a way that's that's productive, it is well past time for men to understand the shit that women go through. Hmm. And well past time. And if you think that that it's overblown or or uh, being used to leverage or to get something, you you really need to self reflect about that because we know. We know how brutal men can be.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because I think oftentimes the the rebuttal of, you know, the rebuttal. I, I like I like the way you put it. Is that the the initial the initial movement was simply about showing the sort of gravity of how many people have how many women specifically. Have you know felt this have experienced this have been a, a victim of it in some way shape or form, and that was mm-hmm. that was the that was just the initial movement just to bring awareness around it and and obviously the movement has sort of evolved past that and and um and there's there's you know a, a lot of political crap that seems to be laced into it now, and of course mm-hmm. you know we live in an era where everything has to be politicized
1: made into a binary to use to get people to do certain things at the ballot box. Right, that's- right,
0: exactly, exactly. It's all, it's all a form of I mean it's it's interesting, right? Because it's it's many different forms of control and and as as we were talking about the man box earlier and some of these pieces around masculinity it's like yeah, that's it's a form of control, right? And it's a mm-hmm. form of being able to police and control one another as you were talking about. But I'm I'm curious as to, you know, one of the big things that seems to come up in conversation uh, around the Me Too movement and and specifically within the the men's side of things is all it always seems to come back to when people mm-hmm. are disagreeing with it, when when men are sort of trying to make some sort of a case against the Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. They always take you the don't, conversation you don't even.
1: <laughs> I can I can tell you exactly what you're about to say. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Go
0: ahead. <laughs> they always take the conversation back to false accusations. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely and because go ahead.
1: Because we we know that felonious that 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 accusations of a felony are such a light and airy and easy thing to to do. Yeah, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go to law enforcement and I'm gonna accuse you of burglarizing my house. It didn't really happen, but eh, what the heck, I'm gonna do it anyway because I'm that kind of person. We the the number of instances of false accusations of uh of sexual assault the numbers come out about the same as any other felony, including bank fraud, right? So we need to understand that that narrative is perfectly, perfectly, uh, you know, focus grouped and shopped and carefully honed in order to undermine the idea that we have a culture of assault against men and women, right? We, we, this, is a, this is a bloody endless nightmare of aggressive behavior. And women are facing it in the form of sexual assault. And that narrative is designed to create just enough uncertainty for men that they don't step up and engage. Mm. Just enough uncertainty. And they are artists at this. The people who create the political binaries in our culture are artists. They can, either, they can either trigger men to be angry and defensive, or they can do something which is even more effective, which is just to give us enough doubt that we hang back. That were quiet. The book, the relational book—I um, mean, the little Me Too book for men—is is about what 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 is done to us to keep us silent, to keep men out of the game, to keep us on the sidelines, to keep us scratching our heads and saying, "Well, I don't know yet." And this is this is what man box culture is designed to do. It it isn't just to bully and make men conform. It's actually designed to make men fear each other and to keep men silent. And it's no accident that the guys on on cable news uh, to the right of the spectrum perform Sean Hannity performs man box culture in the way he speaks, in his aggression, in his contempt for other points of view. He's that guy. He is the alpha in the man box. And so our politics have been reduced to whether or not they can suppress. The men in the middle, the regular daily working guys who are just trying to get their jobs done, just trying to take care of their families, whether he can suppress them from stepping off the sidelines and getting into the game. That's the nature of what we're dealing with right now when it comes to Me Too, the arguments against Me Too, the arguments against the Gillette ad, the integrity bind. It's a thing called an integrity bind, which is we all grew up in man box culture. I did. I spent the first 15 years, 20 years of my life making fun of women making fun of fags. What are you, a fag? I mean, every third statement out of my mouth, because that's the language we had to use to fit into our cohort. So now, if I'm going to stand up and say, you know what? We need to do differently. We need to do better. We need to to really listen to women. We need to stop attacking. I have to make a break with my own history. Mm. And that's the integrity mind, right? Gillette had no right to make that ad because they have no history of doing so prior. Gillette sold pink razors for a higher price. They're 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 stealing from women. They're they're hypocrites, right? Well, we're all hypocrites until we decide to take a stand, and that's another one of the ways in which we keep that huge the millions of men who already believe that equality needs to happen. Romundo's recent study: seventy percent of men believe that you know equality is important and that we're not doing enough of it. Where are they? Yeah, They're silent. They're silent. You ask them privately, they'll tell you what they think, but they're not getting into the game. And these kinds of arguments, false accusations, what are you? You have no integrity, et cetera, are all designed to keep us silenced.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because you see guys like Roger Stone, and I'm not too sure if you're familiar with him or, or if the listeners are, but Roger Stone is basically the guy that yeah. that created the Trump campaign. And he is just this like notorious... I even know how to sort of like like PR gangster. He knows how to stir yeah. stir up and create binary situations and be able to pit mm-hmm. people against other people. And and it's it's interesting because the the data, the factual data around false accusations is so overwhelming and and so clear. Like it's just so clear. That I'm always shocked when false accusations come up online in in some debate where, you know, a, a guy will say, like, well, what about false accusations? And and someone will mm-hmm. share the data and say, well, look, you know, like it's it's like something like zero point zero two percent of of cases that are brought forward are, are shown to be false accusations. And mm-hmm. and. I'm just always blown away when when people still ignore that <laughs> you know it's like
1: <laughs> well and, and and the other side of the data is four out of what four out of a hundred sexual assaults or rapes are ever reported at all right, yeah, exactly, so we're talking about uh the, I mean if you want to know where the where the tragedy is, it's not false accusations, it's that women don't even bother to report because they know how much um uh, how how little their word will be taken seriously, yeah. and how ugly the process is to, to, to report something like that. But I want to, I want to say that there are powerful, wonderful, positive conversations happening right now. Mm -hmm. You know, right now, this book, this little book, 75 page book, uh, the Me Too book is moving very quickly through a number of networks. And the reason it's doing that is because it is, it's not just finger wagging at men, telling them what they've, what they need to do better and all that. It talks about man box culture and what happens to boys when they're four years old coming forward. It is a compassionate uh, story that a lot of, when women read this book, they come back to me and they say, I never knew. I never understood. Now I get it. Now I see what's happened to men. Mm. And if we can uh, begin to have a more compassionate, caring conversation about men while holding them accountable. And what's interesting is I, I... There's a lot of men in the man space who are who are ready to step up and tell men how to be men. I have no intention of doing Mm -hmm. that because I think that's madness. I I think men are such a diverse population. There are so many different ways to be a man that to tell a man, oh, here's the twelve rules for being a man or whatever it is, is I think the height of arrogance. What I will explain to men is what's happened to us and what is continuing to happen to us. And then it's up to us to decide whether we're gonna step out of the man box. And try to find a life of more authentic connection and how we're going to perform that, because that can be a vastly different experience for different men. Um, But this conversation that we're having today and the conversations that are going on, really for men, it needs to be where does my freedom lie? Where does my freedom to be who I really want to be? When do I get to take off these manacles, these chains of, of some simplistic, bullying caricature of manhood? And move into a space where I actually feel like I belong with all of the people around me that I fit in, that I'm part of the community. Come in out of the cold. Join us.
0: Yeah, I love it. I love it. And I think, you know, a big part of of what you're talking about and what we we're talking about before is is being able to have a have a discussion about what a lot of guys have experienced, you know, and and for for men to be able to have more real, authentic, raw conversations with each other that sort of transcend mm-hmm. the the normal the sort of normalcy that we expect to have when it comes to the man box and and those conversations. And I think that that is the starting point, right? Like that really is if there's sort of one thing that I feel like a lot of men can do, it's just simply starting to have a different type of discourse, a different type of conversation with one another, and with the men that are in their life, or if those men aren't willing to have that conversation to seek out the communities that are that are willing to have a different type of dialogue when it comes to when it comes to men and masculinity and and everything that that they're facing in their lives and that that can be the the sort of movement and motion towards them freeing themselves like you're talking about because we all we all seek a, a deep sense of freedom
1: so well and you said it earlier you said the minute that these conversations start the words just the words just tumble out of men they we are ready to speak mm-hmm. we just need we just need the green light to go ahead and have the conversations not only about what's what brings us challenges in our lives and, and what our or our hidden fears are but also our great joys and 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 the 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 playful nature of men and the, and our ability to begin laughing and enjoying each other's company again all of these things which we have been restricted from when we talk about expression being suppressed our joy is suppressed our pleasure in each other's company is suppressed mm. everything is so you know this men's work Uh, when men get a chance to really start talking, uh, it it's life-changing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for being on the show with me here today. This was uh, a great dialogue and great conversation.
1: Wonderful to be with you. Thank you, Connor.
0: Great. So for everyone that's out there listening, don't forget to go and check out Mark's book, The Little Me Too Book for Men. Uh, We'll have links to that in the show notes. uh, And you can find some of his uh, writing. You have writing up on The Good Man Project still?
1: You know, the place to find me these days is on Medium. Perfect. And you can just look up Remaking Manhood. And that's also my Twitter link. So come find me. Awesome.
0: Wonderful. And for everyone that's out there, don't forget to man it forward, share this podcast episode with just one person goes a long way. Don't forget to leave a rating and a review and subscribe on whatever platform you're on. We are on Google Play, we're on Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, we are everywhere. So until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.